This is See Me Now Special Edition Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, with my co-host here, David Ludlum. We are joined today by Assistant Professor of Biological Sciences, Megan Sherboneau with Colorado Mason University. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being with us. And we were just laughing before the show um, because I think you said something like you're a human-centric biologist. And I thought that was a real thing, but I now I'm getting the sense that you were just joking. But what do you mean by that? Like, why do you jokingly call yourself a, a human-centric biologist? Yeah, I, I call myself that because everybody else in biology likes to study something else, <laughs> anything but humans. Um, we like to joke that humans are one of the hardest things to study. But man, we've got a big sample size here, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of us in, yeah. 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 So um, I think I'm going to blanket statement, make the statement that I think I'm the only one in biology that's studying humans right now. So, do all of your colleagues kind of look at you like, are you studying me right now? Uh-huh. Like, are you, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, on a serious note, what, what is it about humans or why do you like to study people? Well, I have a vested interest. You know, that's part of the joke, right? Um, <laughs> I have all the biology I like to study. Um, but I think it's, I think it's really interesting because we have a whole bunch of biological questions that we ask. And we usually go with something simpler like a fish um, or a worm or, oh, my, bio, my biology colleagues will hate that I just said that that's simple. But <laughs> we'll take these experimental animals, the experimental models, and we'll concentrate on those so that we can extrapolate to the human. But really, a lot of us really care about humans. And... Um, so when I think about that, I'm really excited to actually study the human. It's more complicated, um, but it's exciting to study. So especially when we think about health. Um, what makes us more complicated? What makes us more complicated? Because uh, we can't, I can't take a human and put them in a box and control all of their environmental um, yeah, all of their environment going into it. I can't genetically manipulate them ethically. <laughs> um, <laughs> to be clear, um, and if we take some, if we take something like a single cell, we don't have a whole bunch of other communication going on there, right? So it is a simpler system to think about. Whereas a human is a pretty big organism, and um, and we've got some pretty complex biology going on. So. That's why we'd like to do those simpler things first. Um, so we might do a cell culture um, in order to think about humans. But when I talk my, about myself as a human-centric um, biologist, I, I'm thinking about actually studying the human, which is kind of crazy in the big scheme of things. Yeah. So. You're, you said your interests are human biology, evolution, and health when it comes to uh, humans. And I'm thinking... Evolution. Where where do you go with that? Where, where what are you looking into? What are you studying? Yeah. So when we think about evolution and health and humans, um, so health is so evolution. When we think about evolution, we're thinking about um, the healthiest are going to survive to produce more babies. Right. So basic evolution is going to select for the, the healthier individuals. So those things are pretty intertwined. But the reason why humans are so interesting in those evolutionary questions is that we don't necessarily have biology that dictates all those healthy outcomes or survival. We've got these huge brains that will allow us to get around uh, 
things that would make a normal animal sick or challenged with their biology or not able to produce enough babies. So a human can use your big brain to make clothes or to make a house or to make air conditioning so that we can deal with an environmental stressor like temperature that might kill a squirrel. But a human then can we can use our big brains then to make these technologies that allow us to sidestep the environmental challenges. So that's why when I started to think about studying humans, I first of all wanted to study humans in a kind of condition where they couldn't use their big brains to get around the environmental <laughs> challenge. I also self-servingly wanted to be able to hike a bunch and go up to the mountains. So I just studied, uh, decided to study uh, high altitude, which the challenge of high altitude is low oxygen levels. We just don't have a way of getting around that as humans. We don't have a way of making a coat that gives you oxygen. Instead, we have to just deal with it with our biology. And so it's one of the last frontiers where we can look at humans and say, okay, how are they going to adapt to this situation? And, and why is that? I mean, you know, we're constantly finding solutions to problems to make our lives better and easier. But, but the oxygen thing is just something we haven't tapped into yet? Or, well. I would say, okay, we, we do have some ways. I don't know, have, have either of you gone up to an extremely high altitude or even just like a 14er? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. and, and what did it feel like? Can't, it's hard to take a breath, right? You can't get it as you know, deep as you normally yeah. would at lower altitudes. Yeah. You get the headaches sometimes. What, what do you do about that? What did you do? In that case. I died. <laughs> <laughs> That's an alternative, yes. Rest, rest more. Yeah. yeah. Sure, right? Water. Yeah, water. Yeah, resting and water. Those are things that we do. And almost any animal will do that. Um, another thing we can do as humans that we've figured out. So if you think about somebody who's going to climb Everest, they will take a canister of oxygen with them and use that oxygen as their as they're hiking Everest. Most people do use oxygen on Everest. But first of all, that's expensive and it's heavy. And you can't, if you're living at a higher altitude, you're just not going to take around a bottle of oxygen. If you know of anybody who's ever had to use oxygen, it's not convenient. <laughs> it's not convenient to wheel that canister around in a canister that might blow up at any moment, <laughs> right? <laughs> Nobody better smoke around you. So um, that is a technology we've come up with. So we can use that technology. It's just not as convenient as putting on your coat. Right. You said something, uh, you said uh, our big brain several times. And I was reading about this. The metaphor was like there's an arms race between the size of the human head and the brain and, and the birth canal that's been going on from an evolutionary standpoint for a while. And it seems like by most measures, the big brain has come in handy. But have there been trade-offs from that from a biological standpoint? Like, have we paid the price for having these big <laughs> conscious brains in ways that have been really tough for humans? Or I mean, just so there's probably two challenges you're talking about there, maybe. One is the actual size. Right, so yeah. we, we definitely have wobblier heads. <laughs> yeah, my neck actually kind of hurts bigger, now. The bigger head a person has is big, bigger brain. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, so we have to be <laughs> careful on that one. So as a species, the bigger the brain, the smarter generally the species is. 
But within the species, so within humans, the bigger your brain, you don't get to brag about being smarter. <laughs> oh, because I've got a huge head. I know, yeah, I know my brain is big. I mean, it's just smarter. not coming across in a podcast form, but I've got a huge head. Do you um, know what drove like our, so were other primates, their brains and their heads kind of been where they're at for, you know, millions and millions of years, but ours just took off. What, what was the driver for human brains to just separate from chimpanzees so quickly well we should be clear chimpanzees are really smart too Mm -hmm. they have (laughs) really big brains so we're kind of at the we're continuing a trajectory yeah so primates in general have bigger brains and then as we get into the apes we have bigger brains and then humans have just taken it a, a step further um and it's we were probably it's an arms race, right? So we were probably rising to meet a challenge. Um, and then once we met that challenge, we realized we could take that huge brain and do something more with it. Um, so, oh, so, it's, so chimpanzees do have big brains. They, they, the trade-off, so when we get back to the anatomy part, you've got a big brain. And just like you said, birth canal, it's hard to get through. That also means we have babies that are really immature, so we've got these babies that, I mean, you watch, I don't know with the pandemic, if you guys have done this, but all I do now is watch a baby being born at the zoo. Well, kind of like, like like when horses come out, they just stand up and run and they're right. gone. But like right. our babies have, can't stand for two years. <laughs> yeah. Is that kind of the yeah. trade-off exactly. of the brain thing? I mean, think about a giraffe. That that baby giraffe is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, that neck, those legs, and somehow it stands and walks immediately. Yeah, well, I'm thinking, I used to live in Nicaragua, you know, and we have these sea turtles that would come and they lay their eggs and then X amount of time later, there's these babies that crawl up through the sand and there's no there's no mother there, right? Gone. They just pop up and they are gone. They go into the ocean. They're, run- I mean, I don't know if you can call it them running, but you know, they're like scooting along on the sand into the ocean and there they go. There's no, like, there's no taking care of them. And yet here we are with, you know, babies and for you know you're always looking out for them right always (laughs) i mean i was just reading a thing where mom's brain never turns off after she has a baby she's constantly worried about her kids they could be 40 (laughs) (laughs) and the human brain has decided oh that kid's still immature yeah Yeah. wow (laughs) so yeah so we have these really immature babies but i mean our brains I think we can all see that it's our brains it. are pretty useful. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of nice to have a coat and shoes. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. So high altitude is one area where we haven't been able to use our biology to totally overcome the challenges. Is there What else are you working on? What else do you study and are, are you focused on as an academic and professor? So when I came to CMU, um, I was definitely, I, I think studying, starting my studies in high altitude situated me well for a place like CMU because when we come to a university like CMU, it's small. We don't have that many faculty. So what we'd like to do is when students have a passion to study something, we'd like there to be somebody who could make that happen. So with high altitude, I studied enough things that then when somebody comes with me as comes to me as a student, I can figure out a whole bunch of ways to help them study what they're interested in. So with altitude, um, I studied exercise at high altitude, illness at high altitude, and pregnancy at high altitude. And that covers a whole lot of body systems through those things. And so when somebody comes to me and wants to study something like respiration and exercise, 
we can partner up with kinesiology and exercise science, and, and we can figure out ways that we can get that student to investigate their question. And I'm thinking, you know, high altitude Leadville. I have a, a brother-in-law who lived up there for a while, and when um, you know they were going to have their their baby, they 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 couldn't, or maybe they could, but they decided to have the baby elsewhere and leave Leadville. Can you kind of talk about that research and and why is it that that it's more dangerous to have babies at high altitude? Yeah, so we should be totally clear. We are really lucky that we leave, we live in the United States, and most people. Even though they have more challenges at high altitude, most people are going to be just fine because we've got amazing doctors and hospitals. But what happens as you go up in altitude, there's less oxygen. And that's a challenge for all of us. You know, we go hike on Pikes Peak or the Mesa even, and and it's hard to do. But once you have that little fetus in your belly, anybody who's ever been pregnant, you understand when I say it's a little parasite that likes to steal everything for, from you. But it's a, we're really lucky. It's a really adorable parasite <laughs> that we really love a lot. Mm-hmm. And so we're okay with that, with that theft. Um, but babies will steal the oxygen from you. And so what mom has to do when she's pregnant at high altitude is she has to figure out how to get enough oxygen to her own tissues to survive and be functional, but also send enough oxygen to the baby. One of the interesting things in the work that I did for my PhD was we looked at um, people with European ancestry who have not lived at high altitude for very long, evolutionarily speaking. And people, we also looked in Bolivia, and people who had been living at high altitude for probably 15,000 years Ish, so a lot more time to evolve. And what we can see is that the, the European women, the European ancestry women, weren't very good at figuring out where to send their oxygen. They would send it to the babies, but maybe then, oh, their tissues would start robbing the baby. Um, they'd get sicker. And, and so the trade-off um, wasn't happening as well in those women when we compared them to Bolivian women who... Um, their biology seemed to do a much better job at sending oxygen to babies so that babies grew well. So in Leadville, we tend to get women uh, tend to have smaller babies. And it's about we, oh gosh, in science, we use the metric system. So it's about 100 grams less in baby weight per 1000 meters you go up. So it's about a third of a pound for 3,000 feet. And that may not seem like much, but as you get up to Leadville, your baby might be a full pound um, lighter than if you had had your baby at low altitude, which means your baby might be sicker. It is so, and, and babies are sicker. And moms usually get a little sicker too. So I'm fascinated by something you said, because 15,000 years from an evolutionary standpoint seems like a blink in an eye, like almost a rounding error. But you're saying that within that time span, there was an evolutionary occurrence that allowed one set of people in one part of the world to literally evolve to that environment in a physiological way in that short of a time period. Yeah. That's amazing. Cause Isn't don't it? we usually think about like, that's a radical change in a short period of time. How, how is that even, how do you explain that? Um, so if the evolutionary pressure is strong enough, um, you can have very fast evolution. So when we think about evolution, we're thinking about 
how many babies are going on to the next generation, really, at the most basic level. When, so, for instance, when Europeans first got to the Andes, they were looking for gold. And so they would go to these mountain communities because that's where you could get to the gold the, easily, the easiest. So gold and silver, I should say. And so, for instance, in the Andes, there's a place called Potosi where the, um, where the Europeans got there and were, were mining. They didn't have a successful birth for 60 years Really? Among the Europeans, because it was so wow. high. So I think we're at like 14,000 feet in Potosi. So um, if you think about that, you're not putting your genes into the next generation then if you were just living there. Um, but what happened is then they started to have marriages between Andeans, native Andeans and Europeans. And then you started to see babies who could actually forward. survive there. Yeah. Wow. So if you have... A place, a, a situation where you can't have any babies, you're going to force evolution to be quick. Mm-hmm. Does that or else. Sense? Yeah, <laughs> or else. <laughs> so there are gentler pressures, but so Grand Junction is going to be a pretty gentle pressure. Leadville compared to Potosi is going to be a pretty gentle pressure. But if you get to the extreme, no one's having babies on Everest. It's just not happening. <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking about high altitude, and I, I know a lot of our listeners probably are in Colorado, but they've probably had people visit them who are from lower elevations. I know I had a friend come from Portland one time. We went up to the mountains, and, you know, something automatically happens, it seems, to people who are not used to the Colorado Rockies, and they just they just get sick right away. What, like, is there is there some magic solution that we can we can tell people, like, hey— you don't want to get sick. This is what you do. There's nothing really magic. But um, what we're thinking about is those low oxygen levels. That's our main thing. So when we think about that, somebody's coming from Oregon is coming up to a place where there's not as much oxygen. So let's make it easier on them. What can they do to not use as much oxygen? Just like we were talking about before, they can take it easy. Or stop over in Grand Junction. Stop over in Grand <laughs> Junction and see your amazing friends at CMU. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it really, it's worth a layover, right? And, and so that's what we would tell people if they can afford it, is to stop at an intermediate altitude before you go up. When somebody goes and climbs Everest, that's what they do is they go incrementally up mm-hmm. the mountain and you go and you camp out because it's so extreme. You go and you camp out at different altitudes. And so Grand Junction makes a really nice layover. The Front Range, it's a really nice layover. Nice setup, Kelsey. Perfect plug. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? And it's also still really pretty where yes. you're seeing the mountains and getting that yes. anticipatory feeling. Um and so, yeah, so stopping over is great. And then another thing, which may not make sense when you're thinking about oxygen, but another thing that you can do to keep yourself from getting sick is to stay well hydrated. And that's because your body, one of its first responses to high altitude, the low oxygen tells your brain to do some weird things with your blood, right? Because you're wanting to try to get red blood cells to lots of tissues, Oh, we're getting in the weeds. So we're getting red blood cells to lots of tissues. And so your body actually starts to um, mess with your fluid levels. And so somebody who's coming up to high altitude might realize that they're peeing a lot. 
the technical term being <laughs> urinating. <laughs> um, I'm translating it, right? Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're the scientist of the people. That's right. You're, you're speaking right. our language. That's right. You have a sense of humor, too. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so your body starts to do that. And so that happens in the first couple of days. And if you can still stay well hydrated to keep up with, with what your body's trying to do and, and not let it go overboard, that's really helpful. So drinking lots of water, but also, so we often, this is one of the few times where Gatorade is actually a great thing. Usually we don't really need that salty water that Gatorade is, but if you're thinking about staying hydrated as you come up an altitude, then that'll be helpful. But those are for people who are coming from low altitude. Yeah, Us and People who are living in Grand Junction, we're fine. We're good. We, we, we've done some adaptation. <laughs> Our bodies have, have figured out how we can handle this for right now. So, Why is it that we, we landed on the moon, we, ha- we came up with a vaccine for a novel virus in less than a year, but is it it's the hemoglobin that latch on and carry the oxygen around? Is that, why, why haven't we figured out some way to increase people's like the hemoglobin levels where it can just glob onto more oxygen and carry it around real quick. Like what, what, is there something going on in that research space that you're aware of or that you're a part of or? Have you heard of Lance Armstrong? Uh, okay. So it's out there. This is how he's accused of cheating is, is by messing with his hemoglobin. And, and so you can do, you can do something called blood doping. But um, if that, if it were to help people like, Kelsey's question, not not for cheating in sports, but if you're coming for two weeks into the mountains, is there a way that could be used for just casual benefit to people? Or is that <laughs> is it <that> off limits? <laughs> Too many downsides. Um oh, you could you could. So there so what we when we talk about blood doping, what we're thinking about doing is increasing red blood cells, which the idea is that you'd increase oxygen delivery to your tissues which sounds like a great idea when you come up in altitude, there's a trade-off. Oh my gosh, there's another trade-off, right? And so um, what happens if you have lots of red blood cells, you have an increased risk for stroke. So because your blood is now packed so full Mm -hmm. of these kind of globby red blood cells that it could start blocking up like your blood vessels. So while it might be helpful it may not be recommended. Just so you so can. So people at ski. home do not, do not. blood dope. Yeah. Is that what you're yeah. saying? So I think this is a clear message. <laughs> don't blood dope. Yeah. Your hemoglobin, do big brains. It's all about trade offs and biology. It sounds like. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can naturally blood dope. Maybe we'll call it that. You can naturally increase your red blood cells. That's why people train at at intermediate altitudes like Colorado Springs. That's why there's an Olympic training center there. Because what they're doing is they're trying to get more red blood cells and mm. so for elite athletes. So that's a natural way to do it. That's legal. Oh. <laughs> well, I know we're coming to the end of the segment, but do you have time for a couple more questions? Sure. <laughs> so what is, um, from an interdisciplinary standpoint, um, do you think there is enough interdisciplinary work? Does there need to be more? And I think like, the field of evolutionary psychology is just fascinating to me because it kind of blends areas that typically are at at odds sometimes with um, conclusions, but maybe starts blending that. Do you participate in any kind of interdisciplinary work here on campus or have you in the past or what's your take on that? Interdisciplinary work is, I think, the key to science and knowledge. Um, I mean, 
all of us here on campus, we're going to realize that academics love to argue. <laughs> we love to talk. And so just, I mean, interdisciplinary work is going to let those arguments fly. We may start getting really heated. but They're good arguments, though. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're our bread and butter. We love it. I mean, just just get a whole bunch of people over to the point and we'll be set. You we'll know? set up a, a debate between the biology and the psychology departments and just we'll just have it at the point and... Yeah, I need some popcorn. I mean, yeah. (laughs) For those of for those listeners that don't know, the point is a student run. um, What would would you call it? Bar and grill. Okay, that you should you should stop into when you're on your way up to the mountains. Exactly. Grand Junction. See if you stop. (laughs) Or maybe the new place is um, the Devil's Kitchen. Hotel Maverick. Another shameless plug. Shameless (laughs) plug. Yeah, that's my new favorite. Because you can the rooftop. I mean. You, you can see the mountains. That. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that yeah. the point? Yes. <laughs> um, well, thanks so much for yes. joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. We know you have a busy teaching schedule and love to hear about the research you're doing and how it could benefit maybe recreationists someday yeah. here in Colorado. So be wonderful. Great. Well, thank you for listening to See Me Now Special Edition Podcast, where we interview some of the most interesting people in Western Colorado. And Megan Chirpino, you are one of those. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you.